Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. We are reading this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 2, reading the first 13 verses of Scripture. The Apostle Paul writes to his son in the Gospel, Timothy, and says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Father, this morning every word in this book is divinely inspired and God-breathed, including these words that Paul wrote to Timothy from a jail cell. So we're asking this morning that you would illuminate our hearts, open up our understanding, Help us receive divine truth. Impart to us spiritual knowledge this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1937, the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the book entitled The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer was a vocal opponent of the Nazi regime in Germany. He was very outspoken and he would be arrested in 1943 as a German, arrested by the Gestapo, and he would spend the next year and a half in prison before, shortly before the fall of the German Empire, before Germany loses the war, he is sent to a concentration camp. The crime was the involvement in the plot to assassinate Hitler. There's been movies the last few years made about this, very popular Hollywood movies made about the attempted assassination on Hitler, but Bonhoeffer was charged with the crime of the involvement of helping plot that. And there's been a lot of uh, ink spilled the last several years debating whether or not he was justified in this. Could a pastor be justified in helping orchestrate uh, the death, the assassination of even someone as as evil as Hitler? 
But Bonhoeffer was hanged to death in April 1945, shortly before the collapse of the Third Reich. He was 39 years old when he died, but his life and his writings left an impression that still reverberates throughout Christianity today. I have his books, and at 39 years of age, he, just, he has impacted Christianity and continues to do so. He is known for writing on some certain things, but he actually wrote a broad array of ideas and topics. Uh, he wrote, cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. It is not a gift of God. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without confession. It is grace without the cross. But his writings on discipleship are what he's best known for today. And probably the most well-known, famous statement that he made in his writings that is quoted, I see it all the time, and it is, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And then he writes, and if we answer the call to discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we shall have to go to Him, for only He knows the answer. Only Christ Jesus, who bids us to follow Him, knows the journey's end. But we do know that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy. The same man that writes discipleship means joy is the same man that says when Christ calls a man, it is a call to come and die. It's about discipleship. It's the focus of what Paul is writing to Timothy in these 13 verses. Making men and women into the image of Jesus Christ. I say this regularly. I had this conversation with a pastor this week at lunch. And I said, our goal as a people is to lead people in worship unto God and to lead people to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So I believe if we can lead people to worship God not just in a weekly corporate setting like this, but actually a lifestyle where everything that you say and do and all your actions and decisions are counted as worship to God. And then you follow the teachings of Christ and become a disciple. I said, I think we will have pleased God. Discipleship, following Jesus. In Matthew 4, Matthew writes, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, he meaning Jesus. He sees two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus began his ministry by walking through the seaside, finding people and saying, follow me. Matthew 16, several chapters later, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The principles of the kingdom are 
paradoxical. They are reversed. Jesus said, you try to find your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, then you'll find it. The, the word, the concept, the idea of leadership has saturated the church world the last several years, especially through the 90s and early 2000s. Leadership was, was all the rage. Everybody was talking about leadership. And the idea of preachers and pastors as this type of C-level religious executive has blurred the biblical vision of what it means to be a pastor. The preacher, the pastor, the musician, the saint, everybody in the kingdom, we are called first to be followers and not leaders. I'm called to be a follower of Jesus. And I can only lead to the extent that I am a follower of Jesus. I appreciate the support that you all that come every week give the vote of confidence that you cast every Sunday morning by saying, we are going to come hear the preached word of the Lord that comes from my lips. But if I were ever to fall off course, if I were to ever preach another gospel, if I ever pervert the word of God, and I, I pray with all my heart that God would guard my heart from error, but if I ever did, please make sure that you make sure that you follow Jesus and not following a man. We must hear the invitation from the Master to take up our cross and follow Him. We have been called, we are being called actively, and will continue to be called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our calling. We are followers of Christ. Before we're any kind of leader, before we have any kind of position or title in the kingdom, what we really are, we're followers of Jesus. We see in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus begins His ministry by calling people to follow Him. And in chapter 16, He calls people to take up their cross and follow Him. The last words of Matthew's Gospel is Jesus telling His followers to go and make disciples. It's the last words Jesus leaves. We call it the Great Commission. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Here's what we call the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are to go, we are to make disciples, and we are to baptize. That's the calling. Paul's command to Timothy that we read this morning is an echo of Jesus' command in verse 19 that we call the Great Commission. Uh, I want you to see that the correlation. Paul's command that we read, all he's doing is he's echoing the words that Jesus said in Matthew 28:19. So what, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to make disciples? So when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, verse 19, go therefore. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but when we see the word therefore in the Bible, we always say we have to ask what it's there for. And it's there pointing back to the previous verse saying, you can follow his command in verse 19 because all authority is given to Him in heaven and earth. King Jesus reigns sovereignly over all the heaven and the earth. Jesus is in control. 
regardless of everything that's going on, King Jesus has not lost control of the universe. Jesus, who is the Son of God, has been given this authority. It is divine authority, and that's why we can follow the Great Commission. So when Jesus says, go, Jesus' commandment is a green light. Go, move, act, do, take initiative, be bold, be the church. John Piper says the Old Testament is centered around the temple. We have this multi-billion dollar temple, Solomon's temple, or we have the tabernacle in the wilderness. But whatever the case, it's the, the tabernacle, the temple that draws people. Everybody comes to the temple. And John Piper said that the Old Testament is centered around the temple and is, it is a come and see religion. But in the New Testament, it is a go and tell religion. It is not centered around a building, or at least it shouldn't be. This is a go get into the field and tell about Jesus. Now, I I believe in corporate worship. I believe that we must gather together at least weekly and worship, but this is not the pinnacle of the Christian faith, nor is it the metric by which which we measure success. We are an evangelizing go and tell outside these four walls, people. I met with a man recently that had served on a ministry team full time and he resigned and he told me, he said, I was used to ministry where it was about making disciples. He said, but the entire weekly push was one thing and that was how many people can we get there on a Sunday morning? And they could get people there by the thousands, but discipleship was not part of the church vision. We have to make disciples. We want people to come and gather, but our calling is to go and tell. The word disciples appears many times in the New Testament, but the way that Jesus uses it as an action to be taken only appears four times in the New Testament. Matthew 27. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. So, rich man tells us where he's from, tells us his name, and it says he was a disciple. That's, he's, a, he's a person, place, or thing. He's this thing. He is a disciple. It's, that's what it is in our English Bibles. But in the original language, that's not what it says. It says it, it means to be a disciple. Like the word disciple is found, used that way all over the New Testament. But this, in this particular verse, it's only one of four places where it's used as action. He was being a disciple. It's a verb. It's action. He's doing something. He's not just a disciple. He is being a disciple. The man who took the body of Jesus was a rich man who owned his own tomb that he had created. He had the tomb, the Bible says, cut out of a rock. Now, I love this little story because we don't really talk about this that much, but this man named Joseph and how much he respected Jesus, he, were, he went and he asked for the body of Jesus. Nobody else could have, I don't think, would have gotten the body of Jesus. He's rich. He has power. He has authority, he has rank, he has influence in society. And he says, I want his body, and they give it to him. And what does this rich man do? 
How much respect does he have for Jesus that he takes this bloody, limp, broken body and he cleans it up and he wraps it in clean linen and he goes to where he is going to be buried and that was the tomb of Jesus. Jesus, we talk about Jesus being in a borrowed tomb. It's because a man came and said, I, I mean, do you really think they were going to take Jesus' body and put it in a tomb? Is, is that what they did with common criminals? actually haven't researched it, I don't know. My guess is no. My guess is that there's probably a hole somewhere, Doug, where they went and just threw them all in this big pit, maybe burned the bodies, who knows. But if you, if you kill someone with the most inhumane means possible, you probably don't give them a proper burial. That's, I think that's a safe assumption. But this man, this wonderful man named Joseph, comes and he treats the body of Jesus with respect and he puts it in his own tomb. Why could he do that? Why would he do that? It's because he was being a disciple. That's what Matthew writes. It's glossed a little bit in our Bibles, but Matthew is writing he was being a disciple. His discipleship had hands and feet. It had actions. It was a rich man that said, this is a catastrophe of epic proportions. What can I do to make this better? I can't stop it. I can't reverse it. He's dead. But what could I do in this situation? What could I give? Well, I could give him a proper burial. He at least deserves that. He was living out his faith. He wasn't just a disciple. He was being a disciple. We will impact our world when we stop identifying ourselves as the church and when we start being the church. Being the hands and feet and voice of Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple. That's the second place the word is used. The third place is in Acts 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. See how preaching the gospel and the making of disciples here is connected. The gospel is preached, disciples are made. The natural outcome of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that disciples are made and the Great Commission is fulfilled. And the way this happens is that we engage people who don't believe the gospel and we preach the gospel to them. This happens both outside these four walls, but it also happens here within our corporate worship. We preach the gospel. We see people's lives change. We see people repent. I, I saw repentance uh, just this morning, maybe in a little bit different light, uh, I was talking to, to Sean, telling him a story about a, a, a class that I'm in, a seminary class. And at the end of the program, it's been a wonderful program, but um, we've engaged in a book that we were assigned, or at least part of a book we were assigned to read. And in the book, I read about the author, read who the author was, went online, read statements the author had made in, in articles that she had been interviewed in, and, and I emailed the leadership of the seminary and said, in so many words, why in the name of common sense are we engaging 
her material. Um, I have a real problem with it. And I went on and on. Nobody's ever accused me of being brief. Um, so I, I outlined everything. And they came back and, and said, well, our leadership's already expressed concerns, but the things that you pointed out, we didn't know. Uh, thank you for bringing this art to our attention. Um, probably can't change it for this class, but we're going to look into this and so on. And so in the book, she talks about building bridges between different cultures, uh, and that's all fine, no issue there, just building communication. Then she talks about embracing Christians who are not like us, uh, who maybe look at things differently. Okay, uh, if we all have to see the same thing, exactly the same within Christianity, then we will eventually become a denomination of one because everybody's going to see some things differently, and that's okay. And then she said, we have to build the bridge, and we're going to have to, like, how are we going to engage uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are pro-choice, pro-abortion? And I went, time out. Uh, that's okay. Now we've went too far. Um, now I have a real problem with this. And the conversation I had with Sean was telling him the story is, um, you know, when the gospel comes to people who are pro-choice and pro-abortion, and it will and it does and it should, part of what it means to come to faith and come to Christ, because this is not a political conversation. It may be in our culture a political conversation primarily, but in the kingdom, this is not a conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat conversation. This is a Jesus conversation. This is a kingdom conversation. This is a Bible conversation. And I said, part of what it means to come to faith is that when the gospel encounters you and your ideas and your beliefs, you change your mind about things and you stop believing some things and you change it according to Scripture. It doesn't even matter how you feel. You may say, well, you know, I, I still, I, like I have these inclinations, these feelings, that's fine. But you, you set your mind and say, I believe what Scripture teaches I believe this, not because it's a political agenda, not because it's a church ideology. I believe it because this is scripture. You change your mind when you come into the kingdom. And this change of mind may, does not usually happen overnight. This is not always an immediate, you go to bed believing one thing and you wake up the next day. In fact, I would argue that it's impossible to do that. I understand God can do miraculous things, but outside the a miracle of God, changing your mind, it takes time to change the way, to reorient how you think and how you believe. But that's what it means to come to faith. I, I believe these things, these were my values, these were my priorities, this was my agenda, and the gospel reorients everything to a kingdom agenda, to a kingdom values, and you change. And I said, I, I thought about repentance differently this morning because I've always conceptualized repentance as you know, repentance is not just coming to church and coming down to the front and to an altar and asking God to forgive you. There is an element of godly sorrow that goes along with repentance, no doubt. But repentance literally means, the word means, to have a change of mind. The, the literal translation is that you do it about face. You were walking one direction and you turn and you, you turn around and you start walking another direction. That's what repentance means. And part of that turning around and walking a different direction in the definition of repentance is that you have a change of your mind. And so a sense, repentance within a believer from the time they're converted, that, that act of repentance 
could take years. And in another sense, that's why we are always living in a posture of repentance, because if we're honest, all of our values and priorities don't line up with Jesus. I say I'm Christian, but to be Christian means to be Christ-like, and I certainly am not Christ-like in all areas of my life. I don't know about you. Um, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. He's not finished with me yet. He's not done. I'm still being sanctified. I'm still being formed into His image. And so in that sense, I'm still repenting. My whole life is a lifestyle of repentance. It doesn't mean that you're not saved. It just means that you're not glorified yet. I'm, I'm not, I look in the mirror of His Word, and I don't see a crystal clear image of Jesus when I look into His Word. I see still some areas that are blurry. And the thing is, we all know how to get the things right that matter to people. We line those things up really fast, but then we all have those closets in the deep recesses of our soul that when Jesus comes knocking at that door, nobody's here, Jesus, nothing, nothing to see here. He opens up the door and, you know, go on down the hallway, Jesus. There's, I'll, I'll open that door for you, but this one I'm not quite ready to clean out that closet. It's all of us. So in a sense, we are all repenting. We are all changing our minds. The fourth time, the word is used in the New Testament to describe action. A disciple being a disciple is in Matthew 13. Now, just hear these words because you're never going to hear the word disciple in these verses. This is what this verse says, two verses. Jesus said, Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. I didn't hear the word disciple there once. But that same word that's used as describing Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, that same word is in this verse. Except it's called the word trained. The scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. The word trained is the same word used for the making of disciples in those other three verses. Now that's in our ESV translation that we have, that we read from. Uh, the NASB, which is considered the most literal English translation that we have, says it this way. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple. Now there it is. ESV trained, NASB, it's more, it's more of a literal translation. I'd encourage you in your Bible reading and study, NASB is a good version to, to consult. Um, who has become a disciple? Same idea, same concept. Discipleship is a process. That's what I'm trying to get to this morning. Discipleship is a process. You are becoming a disciple. You are being a disciple. You don't get this certificate somewhere along your road of Christianity and says, congratulations, you are now a disciple, job well done, on to the next stage. No, I'm going to be made a disciple until I die or until Jesus comes. It is being trained. The word trained was chosen there intentionally because it is the learning at the feet of Jesus, learning His ways from His teaching. The difference between our discipleship is that the one whose words we follow is still alive. I've used this example before. There are disciples of other religious leaders and followers. 
but all you have is their teachings in a dusty, dry book. I'm going to follow the teachings and ethics of this man who lived thousands of years ago. I am a disciple. I've known, I've known even preachers who have become disciples. I know one preacher in particular who became a disciple of Plato and Aristotle. And I'm not saying there's not good ideas that come from those guys, but uh, you can certainly take that too far. When that became his identity, he was stoic. That was, I'm a stoic guy. I follow, and it's like, well, you know, what about Jesus' teachings? Let's, let's look at those. Like, we're, we're Christians here. We primarily follow the, the teachings of Christ. The difference between being a disciple of Aristotle and being a disciple of Jesus is that Aristotle is dead. Jesus is alive, and he's alive forevermore. The one that we follow his teachings is still here with us. And not only is he is alive, he's with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ that proceeds. So we have his words that he spoke as the incarnate Son of God. His, those words are 2,000 years old. But we also have the Word of God. The Word of God is eternal. So we have the words of Jesus, 2,000 years old. The man Christ Jesus. We have the person of Jesus who is eternal and is with us. So I'm a disciple of one who spoke 2,000 years ago, but who is alive and within me now. We are transformed by knowledge that informs belief and by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit who informs new behaviors. I want to say that again. We are transformed by knowledge that comes in here, and that knowledge then informs, molds, how we believe, what we believe, and then we are also transformed by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit that's in our heart, and that influences new behaviors. So between the belief in our head and the behaviors in our heart, that's what transforms us into the image of Christ. Our minds and our hearts are transformed through discipleship. I, I connected just a minute ago repentance and discipleship. Repentance is both an act, but it is also a lifestyle. We live a life of repentance after God justifies us. One of our constant prayers should be, God, change my mind, reorient my thinking, alter, affect, influence my attitude and my priorities because I'm not like you. There are so many things that are, are not like you. I think if we really took evaluation of our lives, really looked over everything in our lives. I think if we were honest and said, here's my priorities, here's my values, how much of those are informed by the culture that I'm part of and how much of those are informed by Jesus and His Word, we might see that we still have some, some work to do, myself included. Romans 12, Paul writes these words. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What does it mean to be a disciple? As disciples of Jesus, we allow other disciples to transfer information to us so that we may be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. There is a transfer 
and there is a transformation. My role as a preacher is to facilitate this atmosphere so that the Word of God can be sown into the hearts and minds of believers who hear the Word of God. And this seed brings about a harvest that changes the lives of people. We are called to more than personal discipleship, nevertheless, but there is more. And the more is the call not only to be disciples, but now the call moves to, I need to make disciples. I need to be a disciple maker. You need to be a disciple maker. That's what we're called to do. That's the message that Paul is telling Timothy. Verse 2 that we read this morning. Now there's four generations of disciples here. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. So you've heard it from me. The you is Timothy. So there's Paul. Then there's Timothy's the second generation of disciples. And he says, you entrust this to faithful men. There's three generations, and he says those faithful men will be other, able to teach others also. Four. On and on and on and on make disciples. If you think about it, you and I are products this morning of discipleship making that has lasted for 2,000 years. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, if your mind works this way. I've, I've thought about this. It's like... Somebody was alive 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, that was my great, 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 on and on and on, grandma and grandpa. Who were those people? Where did they live? What were they like? I mean, that's just, that's not even debatable. It's like, that's just how the, it's just the birds and the bees and the way life is. Um, we all came from generations of people. And, you know, I, my, my brother has done a lot of genealogical work and was able to uh, go back into our family history, back into the uh, Civil War times and 1800s and, and some fascinating stuff. I've loved reading what, what he's done, um, but, but it's hard to go, you know, like how far can you go back? Some people maybe to the 1500s, 1600s. Um, I don't know what it is, but it's like in Asia, one out of every... I don't know, nine or ten, something like that. It's a huge number of people alive or direct descendants of Genghis Khan. Um, they can kind of go back that far, but um, have you ever thought about your discipleship? Where does your discipleship start? Who influenced you that influenced them that influenced them on and on and on and on, all the way back? The lady in a sewing factory in a little bitty town in Illinois in the 1920s, 100 years ago, invited my great-great-grandmother to a tent revival, was living out this verse. Whether she knew it or not, she was living out this verse. She affected a lady who came to faith, who affected another lady, who affected and, in, affected and infected with the gospel, infused the gospel in their hearts. That lady in that sewing factory, I, I, I told this story years ago in the church in Illinois, and after church, a lady came up to me and said, my grandmother worked in that sewing factory you're talking about. She goes, I wonder if it could have been her. And I said, uh, I wonder that too. And I thought, well, only eternity will tell. It's like, how amazing would that be, like if that were the case? But whatever the case, who influenced the lady in the sewing factory that we don't know her name? Who influenced her with the gospel? Who invited her? 
who invited that lady or man, and on and on and on. My point is you will never, ever know in this life, and only eternity will tell the impact you have on the lives of people that you disciple. Our ministry is to make disciples for Jesus, and that can have generational consequences. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, share in sufferings as a good soldier. I thought about this. I don't know of anywhere else in Paul's writings that he uses back-to-back examples like he does here. This is very uncharacteristic of Paul's writings. It almost echoes what Jesus does. Jesus uses examples about farming and money and the weather. Jesus teaches in parables. Paul doesn't really do this, but in this instance, these are like many parables, like many miniature parables that Paul teaches three in a row and goes, I'm going to give you three examples. He goes, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Number two, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Number three, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. It does not sound like Paul at all. It's very unusual for Paul to write this way, but he's saying, Timothy, I want to give you three quick examples. This is what it means to be a disciple. These are good models. And isn't it something that after 2,000 years that not much has changed? That even today we would be hard-pressed to find any better example of hard work and discipline than that of the farmer, the athlete, and the soldier. It resonates with us. Like, I've never been in the military. I have a lot of respect for the people that do. But I do know, we all know, the tremendous amount of discipline that is required if you're going to enlist. Uh, I know a young man that went into boot camp uh, with the Marines. It's the best thing that could ever have happened to him. He came out the other end of that a transformed individual. He needed that, and it did him a lot of good. It instilled a discipline in him that he never had. It was a very positive effect. Uh, I've never been a a farmer, but uh, I know farming is, is hard, hard, work. Um, it's, it's discipline. It's patience. I, I read a lot, or shouldn't say a lot, I read some of Wendell Berry. I preached about him, used his, him as an example uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, but the man who returned after a very successful stint in journalism and uh, a future in New York City and around the world, in the big cities for Jerusalem, walks away from it all, moves back to Kentucky, uh, 50, 60 years ago, and he's still there as an old man. He's never left the land. And he writes a lot about the land and farming and nature. It's hard work. The athlete, um, I guess I've never been one of those either. Um, but it's like I have friends who have, and I know it's, it's hard work. It's discipline. When I, when I see somebody who is uh, a master of, of their craft in athletics, I know that that didn't just happen tremendous amount of discipline. I had this conversation before that, you know, even professional athletes, you may see them play a game, baseball on a Tuesday night or football on a Sunday afternoon, and uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what their week looks like. All week long, just brutal drills and discipline and nonstop uh, training and development. This hasn't changed. I mean, They know what athletics are. Paul uses 
and leverages the, the analogy of the athlete other places in his writings because that society knew. They knew about the Olympics. The Olympics were already a thing. Uh, they know about marathons and races and all this. And everybody gets these analogies. And then Paul says, that's the model. You may never be a farmer or a soldier or an athlete, but that's the model we're given for our own discipleship and how dedicated we are to be at making other people disciples of Christ. In a sense, God calls all of his followers, not just preachers, pastors. He calls all of his followers to be teachers, mentors, examples, and leaders in the faith. Every single one of us are called to make disciples. Disciple making. I know a man or know of a man. I've sat in some of his seminars. He said, and I'm going off memory, but it was either he was roommates with him or he went to Bible. I think he went to, to, to Bible college with him. He said, and he didn't say who the man was. He said, we were both very young men. And the man said, I, I'm going to be the greatest preacher in Bible college. I'm going to be the greatest preacher of this denomination scene. He said, you know what? He said, he went on, he said, he no doubt, he said, he became one of the greatest preachers among us. He said, I knew I didn't have that in me, I didn't have that pulpit ability. He said, but I'm going to be one of the greatest disciple makers this world's ever seen. And he went out and he did that in his whole ministry, really, even as a pastoring a church. Um, what he was known for is be in people's kitchens, living rooms on Monday nights, and Tuesday afternoons, teaching them home Bible studies, just teaching them scripture, making disciples. Long after he had a church that was big enough to support him full time, long after he could have sat back, he said, I have one calling, and that is to make disciples. Our calling is to lead people in the ways of Jesus. So I close this morning with simply reading these words. Time is not going to permit me to expound upon them at great length, but to read these words. Verses 8 through 13, one more time. After he says all this, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. It's not figurative. He's literally bound with chains. He's in prison. He says, I love this. But the word of God is not bound. Exclamation point. The word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in, the, that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. The words that I hear this morning from Paul, the sentiment that we gather, is maybe we're not taking enough risks. Maybe we're worried about offending people too much. Maybe we're a little too concerned about what's allowed and what isn't allowed. I read an article this week about 
and I'm not criticizing the article at all. I get what they're saying. I, I appreciate that it was an article being written to inform parents this is what is and is not allowed within the bounds of the law regarding religion and the practice and profession of religion within the school systems in the United States of America. And it says, you, you know, you, your kids are allowed to do this. Your kids are not allowed to do that. And I read that, and again, I get it. I'm not criticizing the article at all. I'm just reading that and going, I wonder if Paul would have a category for that kind of thinking. It's like we talk about closed countries, meaning there are countries that are closed to the gospel. North Korea. Some atrocities going on with Christianity in North Korea. It is a closed country. You cannot go there and preach the gospel. Countries in the Middle East, if you are caught preaching the gospel, you will be imprisoned. You may possibly even die. They're closed. Sorry, can't go there. They don't allow the gospel to be preached. Of course, there's people that do. Why? It's because those people are like Paul. They don't have a category. God help us to give us just a little more boldness to be like Peter in the book of Acts. It's like, if you guys keep doing this, you will go to prison. And Peter says, we cannot help but speak about the things which we've seen and heard. Sorry, we, we want to obey the laws of the land. We're not trying to be intentionally offensive. But if you force us to choose, we cannot help but speak about Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that Christianity in America, a man said to me recently, he said, I, I sometimes think I should just pick up and move to another country. He said, I am so done with American Christianity. And I, like, I, I, I understand where you're coming from. I really do. Um, it has certainly tamed. It has certainly took the edge off the church. Um, we want to fit in. We are so desperate to fit in the culture. So desperate to not offend, to not ruffle feathers. Um, I can just tell you that is so far out of bounds from the early church, from the ways of Jesus, from the, the ways of those who said, you kill me if you must, and sometimes they did, but we will be witnesses for Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Father, this morning we've expounded upon, unpacked, exposed your glory in these verses. I pray today that specifically in light of what we've preached this morning, I pray that our concern would not be to mirror anything we see in American church culture or inherent what is the benchmark of success in American Christianity? Because so many of those ideas are so skewed. But Lord, I pray this morning that we would get our metric of success from your word. And we see that that metric is faithfulness, following you, walking in the light of the gospel, sharing the gospel, making disciples of other people so that they can affect the lives of others. I pray this morning, Lord, that, uh, that 
the ground that this seed has fell upon, the seed of your word, that the ground would not be hard, would not be full of thorns and thistles, but that it would be good ground. Lord, that the seed of your word would uh, take root, bring harvest, bring fruit, Lord, that we would today reorient our ways of thinking, our minds, uh, not to an American gospel, but to a biblical gospel, uh, that we would truly be lights, that we would let our light shine in a lost and dying world, to reach people with the gospel, to make much of your name until you come. We ask this this morning in Christ's name. Amen. One more time together. Can we lift our hands together and just worship and honor Him? Jesus, this morning, thank You for uh, Your light of the gospel. Thank You for Your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us not to be damned with the curse of prosperity, the curse of things and stuff and position and power, hobbies, leisure. Help us not to be cursed with those things, but help us to lay aside every weight as the athlete that runs. We lay aside not just sins, but weights that so easily beset us. And we walk out of here this morning with minds that are reoriented to make much of your kingdom, that between now and the time that we die and go back to the ground, that we would take that time and say, nothing else matters but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Lord, that is our prayer. And for that, we give you all praise and honor that you're going to answer that prayer, that you're going to do a work within us, Lord. We thank you for that, for the transforming power of the gospel. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this morning.